Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Today we're talking about the new giant X-Men revamp, revoop, whatever you want to call it, with House of Astonishes and the X-Axis's Paul O'Brien. We're going to talk about the new book, how it's been received, what the plot is, and going forward, all kinds of things. Everything you want to know about these issues going forward, we're going to talk about. We're also going to talk about some of the other books on the shelf right now that you may be interested in. And we're going to end with some talk of the current wrestling scene, including AEW, what's going on so far with them, the new NWA show on YouTube, and so much more. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, I was talking last night. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. There hasn't been anything in recent mainstream comics that has garnered the attention of fans like Jonathan Hickman's revamp of the X-Men universe. To talk about those books, the future of the X-Men, and some other stuff, I'm very happy to welcome to the pod the other half of the House to Astonish podcast, Paul O'Brien. And this is a reunion of old school volume one beat alumni. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Gosh. Hello, Mark. Um, so, yeah, as you say, hox pox. Um, it really has been quite the thing. The we, we, It's been a while since anyone's really been paying any attention to the X-Men, hasn't it? I've been used to being more or less ignored by the rest of the on, on internet community for a while. Except, and all of a sudden... I'm getting hundreds of posts on comment, uh, comments on on posts on the blog. It's it's been a while. I yeah, I am a fairly casual X reader. I was telling uh, Matt that works with us that I think the last time that I regularly read the X Men books month in month out, I stopped at issue two hundred. And I mean old issue 200, Trial of, Trial of Magneto 200. Wow. So, other than, I mean, I've read lots of stuff since then. I mean, you know, I worked in a shop, so I was able to go back and read decades worth of stuff over the years. And, you know, you can, especially now, you know, you, you, know, you get a... you get a drink and you sit down in your local bookstore and you go over and, you know, you can... Just pick up a you know whatever trade they may have in stock, and you can, you know, I think, and I think the last time that I regularly read, what I guess you would call the quote-unquote main X book was, I think when Gillen wrote it. So that's been four or five years, maybe something like that. So I mean, I flipped through them, and I think the I think the only X book I was reading regularly was the X twenty three book, and then when that changed when the creators changed i stopped reading that regularly so i don't think i have read most of the regular x universe in a while so i'm i'm mainly through flipping through books on a wednesday or going to the bookstore or reading reviews that's all i really know what's been going on in recent times yeah we should say for anyone who doesn't know i've been doing x-men reviews weekly since gosh onslaught I think the first ones were around about onslaught, so that's that's more of my life than I probably like to think about. <laughs> but if if you got off at two hundred, that's I mean that's 
that really is quitting while you're ahead. That's that's way before it, um, anyone would argue that that it went off the boil. Um, we've had some. I mean, you're right that um, that the, that X twenty three book was pretty good recently. We've had some, some some yeah. There's been some decent runs along the way. Kieran Gillen's run was was a good run, but I don't think people have re- we've had anything that's really got people talking in quite this way since the Grant Morrison run, and that was getting on for twenty years ago. That started Which, in mid two thousand and one. Well, it seems to me that reading your blog that. Yeah, the main thing that people seem to be comparing what Hickman has done here is the Morrison run, which I guess maybe was the last time somebody shook things up so greatly. I mean, we have status quo changes, you know, every few years, probably every time the the writer of the month, you know, get, takes over the book. Because uh, when I was reading stuff to do this, I went back and I, I was trying to think what would be a good comparison to this. And I didn't go back to Morrison, but I did go back and read Deadly Genesis, which, when you think about it, you know, has a lot of the same sort of key things, I guess you could say, as Hoxpox. I mean, you've got, you've got Mora as a main character, sort of. You've got the island, sort of. And it, so, I mean, it, it sort of struck a lot of chords. I was like, oh, there's a lot of similarities. I was mainly trying to go back and try and remember when exactly Moira was still alive or was dead or had come back. Because I was like, because, I mean, given her... Moira died immediately before the Grant Morrison run began. Um, she dies in the, uh, what's it called, Dream's End crossover which is a really almost totally forgotten crossover because it comes in the dying days of the pre-Morrison run when everyone knew they were just about to reboot. And so no one really was paying a blind bit of attention to what was going on. And it's a really weird, badly put together crossover that runs through uh, two X-Men titles and I think an issue of Excalibur and the final issue of Bishop the Last X-Man, which otherwise wasn't even set in the present day. Um, and it makes no sense. Um, and if you go back and read it, because it's all on Unlimited, it it does create some problems for the story Hickman seems to, the Ratcon Hickman seems to be pulling, because it's not just that Moira dies. You know, she, her spirit departs to the afterlife on panel while com- while having a conversation with Charles Xavier. So, and then Xavier spends the whole of the next issue reminiscing about uh, about her and thinking about how very very dead she is so there's some either hickman's just ignoring that or there's some serious explanation still to come and i i think one of the ways he's i think they're trying to signal that no no we're aware of this is that in in house of x2 when you get all those repeated panels of her in the in a pub looking across the room at Xavier uh, at Xavier she is um wearing the same what seems to be the same jacket that she has in the flashbacks in the issue where Xavier is uh, reminiscing about her death so which seems like it's a way of signaling yes yes i've read that issue i know um but yeah that that's when that's when Moira died that's how long it's been um, well, of course no- it's it's not like we haven't had numerous examples of people who were stone cold dead and appeared and and it appeared in hell or heaven and then it turns out that wasn't actually them i mean i know 
off the top of my head that happened with Mockingbird, you know, where she was killed, visited in hell, escaped hell, went back to hell, and then it turned out, oh, wait, that wasn't her after all. And then you're like, so I think you just take sort of like, I think with superhero comics, you just take everything now with a grain of salt and continuity is is continuity is good when you need it and continuity that you don't need is best just not talked about. Well, um, yes and no. I mean, Hickman's, I mean, what Hickman's saying here is that that wasn't Moira, in which case she never died at all. Um, and so there's a question of how much you are willing to play, play fast and loose with the history. Cause it's, it's not so much that we've seen Moira in, um, in lots of ghost appearances after she died. I don't think we have, it's that this flatly contradicts, on the face of it, the issue where she dies, which is the very issue he keeps talking about. So, I mean, I, I mean it's such an obvious contradiction that I'm sure he he has something in mind there. And one of the things I I, I wrote about in my review of the, of the of the two series is one of the things he's doing very well here is just creating a sense that honestly this is all part of a grand design and you can trust it. And if it looks at first glance like something makes no sense or doesn't fit together then honestly it will now on the other hand did you, have you read the uh, q&a that hickman did um earlier this week no not yet so as you would imagine he declines to answer a lot of questions but he does answer the question of hold on how how can people just come back from from the dead when we know there's an afterlife and, and so on and so forth and he doesn't give a complete answer to that but he does make a a somewhat similar point to the one you make, which is there's been so many stories where people have died and then apparently come back from the um, from the dead in the Marvel Universe that you have to assume that somewhere in there there's some sort of mechanism where the soul can return to the body. So maybe that's how it works. And that's why all of his uh, these X-Men who have been restored from backup, which is literally what's going on in, in Hoxpox. If you, if you haven't read it, I was, say, I was about to say we should we should do the, we should set up the very the very yeah if you want to go ahead and do the very quick summation the very quick summation so what Hickman has set up as the new status quo of the X Men is point one they're all now living on Krakoa which is uh, has basically declared independence and um, has massive leverage over the rest of the world because it's got these incredible wonder drugs that they can sell to everyone. Yes, this is a comic about the international pharmaceutical industry. Um, and among other things, we discover that um, the X-Men have now got a um, system they've got lined up which uh, using five mutants working together and um, the DNA samples they've kept from everyone and records of everyone's uh, mind, they can restore people who die by cloning them a new body and downloading the backup of the version of the mind into that body. And this happens to an entire team of X-Men during the, the, the series. They're killed. They're apparently killed. They're apparently restored from backup. And you get this long you know, quasi-religious sequence of other characters standing around and going, this is definitely the real character. It definitely counts. It's definitely them, et, et cetera, et cetera, in a way which comes across as a bit you protest too much. Um, there's this really obvious questions in the way this is set up of, is this really the same character rather than a copy of them? Um, I think ultimately they, it looks as if they are going to go with the idea that, yes, this these are in some meaningful way 
the same characters. But on top of that, we have this big retcon that Moira McTaggart not only wasn't dead, but is a mutant whose only power is that every time she dies, she goes back in time and starts living her life over again with a perfect memory of what came before. And so in her nine previous lives, Moira has basically discovered that not only, that the mutants always lose, not because they aren't the, the natural evolutionary successes of humanity, but because uh, the humans ultimately overtake them by merging with the machines and becoming post-human. Uh, and the rise of technology at the end of the day renders your biological evolution irrelevant. Who cares what the successor is to evolution if it's going to be the machines anyway? So Moira is hanging around in the fringes of uh, Krakoa, seemingly unknown to everyone else. And there's general hints that all of this um, and this new um, separatist radicalism that suddenly seems to have overtaken Professor X um, is all part of some broader hidden scheme to eventually stop the uh, the mutants from being, um, not just the mutants, but everyone from being overrun by um, technology and becoming part of uh, some sort of technological collective like like the phalanx, the, uh, the techno-organic things that have been around for, for years. It's, so those are your two, your two basic strands. It sets up what's happening right now into the new status quo which is house of x and it sets up all of this weirder stuff about um what the grander agenda is and what uh moira um is, is what everyone is supposed to be potentially trying to to uh, steer towards in the long run which is powers of x sorry powers of 10 because the x is meant to be a 10 in that one and i still call it powers of x i think it's all we all just say hox pox because it's much easier yeah, Hawks Pod Ten doesn't doesn't really work. Um, so, so that's what what House of X, Powers of X is. It's a it is a radical change from from what's gone before. More in terms of the of the style in which it's done than in terms of anything um, of the of the plot as such. Because you can you can point to precedents in X Men history for almost all of this. In, in plot terms, it's it's no more radical than the no more mutants thing. It's no more radical than that time that Brian Bendis decided he was going to bring, you know, the Silver Age X-Men to the present day and have Cyclops become a radical extremist um, who never actually did anything but kept shouting a lot about mutant revolution. Um, you know, if you start, step back and look at it, it's not really any more radical than any of those in, in pure plot terms, but it's the way it's done with all these weird, heavily designery data pages and things like that. It just doesn't look like anything you've seen before in the X-Men. No, what I was going to say is that interesting. It is a lot of, it seems it's a lot of sort of new spins on a lot of the old X-Men themes or yeah, a lot of plot points. I mean, this is what the third time they're going to, be their quote unquote and own island nation slash city. You know, we had Genosha however many years ago. We had Utopia not that long ago, relatively speaking. You know, the stuff with the phalanx and the techno organics, it's like, it, this again proves Hickman's love of that early era New Mutants because, you know, suddenly, you know, Douglas, Douglas Warlock is now one of the most important characters in the book. Yeah, these, there's, I mean, so far that there's a lot of these, very few characters have really had a lot of individual panel time, but he's he's really quite keen to use Cypher, 
which is um, an unusual choice to put front and center. Um, I mean, he's he's the first person since Bendis used, left to actually use some of the characters like Tempest and Gold Balls in the X Men. The the only other book that's done, I mean, all of those new characters who have introduced to be the trainees in Bendis's Uncanny X Men. I think the only other one who's appeared anywhere, the only one to appear anywhere until now was was Gold Balls, and that's because he was moved over to be a supporting character for Miles Morales because Bendis was writing it. So I mean, he is drawing on on all the, the various parts of uh, of X Men history, and actually, if you if you stop and look at it, there's almost nothing in there that uh, is completely original as an element. Almost everything in it is is built from things you've seen before. So even when you go to the future timeline bits in Powers of Ten, um, the new X Men who we see in the future are all clones who've been created by blur by blending together bits of other characters. There's literally, it's literally all the older elements, but but in a new order. Well, I think that was one of the fun things when he finally got around to giving us their names, and we could see, you know, where all their bits came from. It's like, oh, this guy, you know, this guy has Rasputin in his name, so he's either, you know, he's either from Peter or he's from Ileana, and there's also you know, a pride in there. So we know that that somehow, you know, we know Kitty's part of it, but then, then there's like four other names. So you're like, okay, so this guy is part Colossus slash magic, part Kitty pride, part this person, that person, that person. Then you start playing, you start playing the game. Who's this character supposed to be? And is it really just gene splicing or, you know, cause in the past, when you get future stories, you, you know, when you get a second generation or third generation character, you're like, Oh, he's supposed to be the the child of X person and Y person, but now we're a thousand years in the future, or whatever. And now they're all gene spliced and blended together. Which, which, you know, again, this book is full of Easter eggs, especially, you know, for someone like you who's read probably every single X book there's been. But you know, you know, all the sort of big hits. It's like, hey, oh, there's Nimrod. I haven't seen him in however long since the last time they used Nimrod and bringing back, you know, bringing yeah. back, bringing back Douglas. And I'm sure we're going to see that, you know, there's the intriguing thing that isn't really touched on. That's only, we only see as an alternate cover for this last issue, which has sunspot as apparently the, the new emperor of the Shi'ar. It's like, where's that come from? Other than we know that Hickman loves sunspot and we know Hickman loves the Imperial guard because he wants to write the Legion. So it's like, is that going to be in one of the books coming up? Probably, but who knows? He keeps they keep mentioning the Shi'ar in person, um, and I think Vulcan is meant to be in in the X Men series when it starts. Um, we're recording this on on Tuesday, I should say. So X Men number one comes out tomorrow. So by the time you listen to this, um, you will probably have read or. If you if you're interested, you will have had the opportunity to read X Men number one, so, which neither of us has seen. I I haven't read any of the um, uh, 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 any preview copies, and I try my best to avoid spoilers. So uh, um, anything we say could be completely out of date by the time the, the uh, this podcast actually goes up. Well, that was the interesting thing where we saw the covers for all the new issues that were coming out during the middle of this of this run so you had to try and guess it's like okay this person is this person is in this book along with 
characters X, Y, and Z. It's like, how how are we going to get from what happens in Hoxpox to where we're going with these, these you know, eight or nine number ones? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't place too much weight on those covers because if you go back and look at the actual covers in House of X and Powers of X, they don't actually tell you, a, they don't have a great deal to do with the contents of the issues. So all, all you can really take from them is that the characters on those covers are going to be used somewhere. Um, so beyond a cast list, I, I wouldn't put a great deal of stock in what happens to be on the uh, uh, in the promo art. In fact, some of the promo art, I think one of the covers for House of X, so Powers of X, Powers of Ten, is is actually miscolored in the cover um, that was released as promo art in order to disguise the identity of one of the characters as well. So they're uh, they're trying to avoid obvious spoilers in the in the solicitations and the cover art, and they've done a pretty good job on that. Well, I mean, see, one, we've, we've we've heard that there have been well. I know on Twitter, Hickman was sort of taking green amusement and pointing out how many typos there have been. And now we apparently – and one of the issues that people raised was when Xavier meets Forge and why exactly Forge is dressed the way he is given – That's an art error. Right. Well, that's I was going to say – confirmed that, that yeah. now. That's in the Q&A this week. That's an art error, and they, they apparently it was too late to fix it, so they tried to, to blur over it by by mis, by changing the color. He says, it sounds like he was drawn in an X-Men costume, and he wasn't meant to be. So that's, again, something that may eventually be fixed when the trade comes out. So we'll remember it, that it happened, but going forward, it would be like uh, the next generation of, of, of Star Wars where – you know, they've gone back and changed plot elements they didn't like to fit their needs, and only the people old enough to remember the original know what happens, and that's going to be the same with this comic. It's like, I remember originally when they they drew this wrong, or he messed up the letters of the Krakoan alphabet in one of the text pages. Yeah, there's a, I imagine they'll, I mean, they really ought to fix the, there's a sign in House of X1 written in Krakoan, which is just wrong. It's meant to say Mars, and it actually says Galf. <laughs> so... Um, so that's the sort of thing that I think they ought to fix. And the fact that there's, um, um, in one of the um, timeline graphics, there's two things that are the wrong way around and it actually makes a difference to the plot. Yeah, those are the sort of things that, yes, absolutely, by all means, fix them in the reprint. Um, do you fit? What, what nobody's ever done so far, I think, is is fix them in the digital release. Um yeah, you know, because you, it does always offer you you know, this as an improved version for new reading. Um, you, know, you you could always memory hole um, the original digital versions of these things and uh, and not and fix the typos. And obviously, you could, you could change them in more ways than that if if you wanted to. True. So I guess uh, to boil it down, um, what I know uh, your review is up on the website, but on the whole, did you enjoy Hoxpox? Are you looking forward to where it's going? I did. I did because I, mean, I am sold on the idea that Hickman has a big idea here and that this is all going somewhere. And it's I, I, I'm open to the possibility that it could all go horrendously wrong. But so far... It's it's been a book where if you sit down and do what I've done with the annotations posts, if you sit down and and pick away at it and look, and look for points of detail, um, even though you do pick up some oddities and discrepancies in doing that, for the 
so for the most part, that turns out to be a pretty rewarding exercise that you find more in the way of hidden depth or or what appears to be hidden depth than you do in terms of things that just don't work or don't make sense. Um, and I think one of the things that's really interesting about the reaction to Hoxpox is how much it's got people talking about the plot of a comic. Um, that's not what online fandom, or at least my the, the, the sections I normally read, actually tends to focus on. It tends to be more, you know, in industry politics or the, or the style of a of a particular book. It's, it's unusual to have quite so much intention and discussion being paid just to the plot of a, of a comic. And I, I mentioned um, Lost in the review, um, which obviously is maybe not the comparison you want to draw if you're thinking of it all coming to a happy <laughs> and satisfying conclusion at the end. But it's getting that sort of response of people um, who are in it, people being interested in trying to um, just unpack where it's going. And I, it, I'm trying to remember the last time um, I saw a comic get that sort of reaction of people being that into just unpicking it and making sense of it. I've been sort of surprised how, I guess, polarizing maybe it's been, at least going by the comments on, on the House of Sage page, where there there's a, there is a very vocal percentage of the readership mm. that has not liked it at all, which... I mean, admittedly, I like Hickman's stuff, so I was inclined to like it more for Hickman doing Hickman's stuff with the X-Men than liking an X-Men book that happens to be written by Hickman. But there, I think there are just people, it seems, on, on your board that just, A, don't particularly like Hickman's style and therefore don't like him doing it with the characters they like, or just necessarily don't like what he's doing with the plot, like you were saying. And that's fair enough. I mean, if you do something that's, that feels very different from what's come before, by definition, it's not going to be what some of the existing audience uh, are after, and, and, and fair enough. And if you want to argue that some of the things Hickman is doing here break the book, um, I can see where you might be coming from with that. Although I would say that if that's your threshold, then to be honest, the book was broken with uh, the end of House of M, the No More Mutants thing, and it's never really recovered from that. Um, but yeah, it's it, it. I I understand why there will be people for whom who really don't like this. Um, I'm, if anything, I'm surprised it's been it hasn't been more divisive than it is because it's certainly it's certainly been a big seller to the end at least if you justify if you go by the the digital sales where it always always seems to rank highly. Well, I know anecdotally that about a month or so ago, where because of my schedule, I don't necessarily get to go to the store on Wednesday, so. There was, at one point in the early couple issues, I went into a store locally looking for, I think, issue three or four of one of the two books. And not only were they sold out, they did not have any copies of any of the issues. So, I mean, I certainly cannot recall. And, you know, stores did not order light on this. Admittedly, I did have a retailer tell me that this book being weekly meant they weren't able to 
they made their best guess, but it was certainly it was bigger than they expected. And the turnaround time meant they didn't get new printings or restock as fast as they wanted. But yeah, I can't recall something selling this well and quantity in a, in stores in a long time. Yeah, I mean, certainly for the, for, for the X Men, it's I mean, the X Men has I think sort of had had drifted into something like the position that the Avengers books were in before Heroes Reborn. Um, you know, it's still being published. Um, no one's really talking about it, but it's still there. And this really has uh, put a lot of eyeballs back on back on the X Men in a way we haven't seen in in, in many many years. I mean. You, you mentioned the the sense of it being a uh, that, that Morrison felt like a big break from the past when when he came on and, and and he did, but it was almost easier in those days to be a break from the past because if you think about what had come before that, you had Claremont writing from 1975 through to 1991, followed by a decade of stories that expressly positioned themselves as being a continuation of the ongoing soap opera of the X Men. So when Morrison does a sort of clean break and says fresh start, it's the first time anything like that has happened in a quarter century. Um, but nowadays, yeah, as you say, you get reboots every year and a half or so. And to make it feel like it's a it, it's a real ground zero fresh start, you really do have to go really big um, and do something so um outrageous almost like the Moira McTaggart retcon um that you feel that you think the the, the fact that it sees print in the first place um counts as an unusual vote of confidence from Marvel that yeah we're we're committing to this this is just so over the top almost um and how it gets away with it is actually quite quite interesting to me it's if this hadn't worked it would be painfully embarrassing <laughs> Well, to me, the good thing is that we're doing this with the quote-unquote real versions of the characters, cloning notwithstanding. But, I mean, this isn't Age of Apocalypse, and it isn't House of M, and this isn't whatever the recent thing that they did with with Nate Gray. Age of the, X-Men. I mean, that was quite interesting. That was, I mean, that was, I mean, that was a really pleasant surprise. It doesn't quite come off at the end. But considering it was a filler arc to buy time while while Hickman was was getting was getting ready, it was a really unusual, fairly ambitious thing. It was not what you would expect. It was it was one of the more interesting things the X books had done in a while. But again, that was another alternate timeline. Blah blah, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. This is as far as we know, all of our are the real versions of these characters. I know for a while there was the theory that because Xavier had never taken his helmet off, that somehow it was not going to be real Xavier. Some people thought it was going to be Ultimate Reed Richards, despite the fact that he was in another book at the time. But, you know, don't let that stop us. And, but, but it's Venom, you know. <laughs> so, but he's also... Venom. Well, he's also now in the, I think, at least a version of The Makers in the Future Foundations book. Oh, okay. So... Uh, at least it's it appears to be him whether or not you know again he's not wearing the helmet he's just it's just young reed richards with something wrong with his face so but nominally these are all are the normal versions of these characters behaving 
in some cases very atypically, in some cases kind of typically, but uh, with ulterior motives. It's, you know, it's who knows what's really going on with Apocalypse or Sinister or maybe even Magneto, where, you know, they, they appear to be playing nice for now, but I think, and, and certainly with Mystique and whatever happens with Destiny, I think we know there are all these people that are playing nice at the table for now, but have their agendas that you know are going to show up at some point. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, it's, a, it's a very, very strange uh, situation. I mean, that the way he's, as you say, a lot of characters are acting in a way that feels slightly out of character. And what's slightly hard to tell at times is how much of that is Hickman's style. And how much is an actual plot point? That's one of the things I'm going to be really interested to see when we get into the the wider line. Because, of course, there's a whole line of X-books that's supposed to, to spin out of this starting um, over the next few weeks. And it sounds as though these really are all designed to fit into the, the Hickman verse. Some of them more central to it than others, I'm sure. But we're going to start seeing these uh, Hickman concepts are going to start seeing Krakoa as depicted by other writers who presumably won't share all of the same ticks and stylistic foibles uh, that, that Hickman does. And then I think that's going to be very interesting to see how, how that holds together, whether it um, makes the whole thing richer and gives us a load of different perspectives on, um, on what we've currently only seen through the very high level uh, lens of uh, of House of X, or whether it uh, drags the thing down because I can't, you know, law of averages, some of these books are going to be not good. Um, how how much they mess up the um, the wonderful hermetic um, untouched Hickmanness <laughs> of Hoxpox, and how 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 that aura survives. The introduction of a committee is, is I think that's the real road um, speed bump where things could go uh, badly wrong for this if they're going to. And we'll, we'll see over the next few weeks how, how that works out. I mean, they'll obviously have thought about that. It's such it's, a, it's an obvious challenge. But that's where I think there's um, going to be so much potential either for things to get really interesting or for things not to go so well. Well, one of the things that I was wondering about, just from sort of a plot standpoint, is we know that they're resurrecting all of these characters, especially the ones that have died. But the question is, and I don't know if this was addressed and I just don't remember, is are these guys, when he reboots them and loads in the backup, is the backup from right before when they died or how far no. back? Because It's from the last time he backs them up. Because, and then there's a the question is, could, does he when you revive somebody, could you, instead of uploading version six, could you reload version two? And therefore yes, they, could. they only remember, you know, and then there's, you know, you have so yeah, many. They're, they're pretty clear about that because there's, the, 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 it's, it's buried in the footnotes, I think in one of the data pages, but it goes out, it, it throws in that Professor X has restored himself from backup twice presumably in order to wipe his memory of things. So, yes, that does seem to be how it works. 
And that seems like the sort of thing you throw in specifically to undermine the idea that these are comfortably at least the same characters. Maybe that's what Proteus, the reality warper, is is doing in there in the uh, in the group of five five mutants who create these these clones. He's the one because he you know, messes with reality. You can just say, oh well, that's that's how we fudge it. That's how he come these come to be the real characters despite all the stuff that uh, um, that on the face of it doesn't quite work. And I, I suspect that will end up being the explanation, because there's a bunch of characters who were killed off in the run-up to Hickman's run, no doubt on the, on the, on the view that um, they were all going to be brought back during this, uh, th- this run. Um, and in the long run, I think people are going to, uh, whether it's Hickman or somebody after him, they will end up saying that these all count. Because I was just wondering, you know, a character who has had like sort of notable revisions to their character, whether it's like a plot point or costume or things like that. It's like, you know, if you bring back Warren, could you bring him back before he was ever Archangel? Well, when Warren comes back, he can be both. He, the revived Warren um, can be both angel and Archangel. And I think I mentioned that in a post on the board, it's like how many, you could have, What's to prevent them from having multiple versions of the same character running around from different points in history? Ethics. There's nothing well, be, to, to prevent it beyond that. And in, and, yeah. and in fairness, if you want to argue that, I mean, the Stepford Cuckoos already are five extra clones of Emma Frost, and they've been around for years. One of whom apparently does not want to is going to ditch her human name, which I thought was funny. That reminded me of. Something Hickman, I think it was Hickman, did in Fantastic Four with, I think, one of the Moloids, who I believe, uh, like, changed gender or something to that effect, where they decided that, you know, I'm no longer going to be X, I'm going to be Y. So it made me think of, like, you know, what, again, like, you have all these different versions, you know, you could have an army of of Wolverines, it's like one from the, you know, I think I said one brown costume Wolverine, one yellow costume Wolverine, one version of Patch, one old man Logan. You know, you could just have an entire team of different Wolverines. Uh, yeah, they do say that they that they are supposedly have these strong ethical guidelines that they're not going to bring back um, any character unless they're absolutely sure that the that they have indeed died. So uh, at the same time, they're you know they're set up, they're you know, there's practically a neon sign saying we're going to do a story about this. And then there's the question of when do they bring back Destiny, which supposedly is one of Mystique's uh, conditions for being part of this. When we saw that Destiny is apparently the biggest hurdle to Moira McTaggart and her plan, where you have the person whose mutant power is reincarnation and the person whose mutant power is seeing the future at loggerheads. Yeah. Well, that's more of a, there's a whole load of things in there for, uh, part of it seems to be that Moira doesn't want specifically destiny because destiny killed her in a previous life. Part of it seems to be that Moira doesn't want any, uh, any mutants with precognitive powers on the island because from her previous encounters with Destiny, she knows that the precognitives confined her because she just does such weird things to the timeline. 
So apparently the uh, uh, she, she's just as scared of being discovered if destiny is there. But also um, there's obviously a big hidden plan there. And Moira is also, from the look of it, scared that if there are people around who can see the future, then the secret's necessarily going to be um, exposed and the whole thing comes tumbling down too early. And it seems to be a, a mixture of those three. But uh, whether... Is it, whether, whether it Professor X and Magneto necessarily care about this as much as she does may be debatable. And of course, it's funny given how many characters in the X Men universe you have running around who are from various alternate futures. It's like you have Rachel, you have Cable, you have Bishop, among others, who are from some versions of the future. Whether or not, you know, and how that impacts more will certainly be a question. <laughs> Yeah, because he's not used any of those characters so far, um, except for passing reference for Bishop. But some of them are in the regular cast of the of the upcoming titles. So I, I, I think it's one of these things which complicates an already complicated position so much that um, it's been deliberately parked until they get this first arc out of the way. But they're, they're clearly I mean, Cable is, is going to be used in one of the ongoing titles. Bishop's got a role somewhere. So they're clearly doing something with them. And apparently in the old continuity... Moyer and Cable had a fairly close-knit relationship, if I, if I read my synop- my Wikipedia correctly. Ooh, I think that might be one of these things where Wikipedia has got a little bit excited about the fact that um, Moira was in the flashback month issue of Cable, from memory. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if she actually has much more to do with him than that. Um, because, yeah, she does appear in the... Um, She's in a Joe Casey and Jose Ladron flashback month issue uh, where she meets Cable um, back in the Silver Age. But beyond that, I'm not sure they've had that much to do oh, with the, one another. That may, yeah, that may be that may be my bad on on using secondary sources. But and of course the other the other uh, red or not red herring, but the other sort of MacGuffin floating around that was briefly tossed aside in issue one is Franklin Richards. He of the reality bending powers, who is a mutant, and according to Scott, would be welcomed on the island whenever he wants to. So it's like there's somebody to, you know, if you if you introduce him into the mix, who knows where that goes? And you know, Hickman loves Franklin Richards. Yeah, although of course he's that's an odd one because Franklin is a supporting character in another title. Um, it's I mean it it seems unlikely that Fantastic Four is going to get sucked too closely into this but again I, I assume we're getting something with Franklin at some point it's been set up too obviously for it for it not to happen um, but at the same time he's a fantastic four character and uh, FF is doing its own thing but that you do wonder again people have wondered how this how this new X paradigm is going to fit in with with the rest of the the Marvel universe. Well, too. yeah, exactly, because we've now decided that you know we've got these mad wonder drugs which have cured most disease and have extended human lifespan. I mean, there's a, there's enough wiggle room in there to say, well, it's not cured all disease, so we haven't completely broken any comic that's trying to do a story about a supporting character with cancer or something like that. But I mean, these are the sort of things that you know, if they stick, really ought to make a big difference to the Marvel universe. But yeah. I suppose the answer to that is they're not going to stick. They're going to, when when the Hickman run ends, all of this has been set up in such a way that it can be stopped. Um, you know, the you, the 
the island can be got rid of so that the sort so that the drugs can no longer be created the re um the re reincarnation thing appears to require um all the cooperation of five specific mutants so all you have to do is put a, is kill off one of them um there's all sorts of ways of taking a lot of these big grand ideas off the table um in a way which doesn't betray anything hickman's doing but allows you to get back to a more conventional setup and at that point that period where all the wonder drugs were available you know goes into the big bag of uh of uh, things that ought to be uh, horrific events that everyone keeps talking about but for some reason never get mentioned again like that time new york got turned into um it turned into hell um or the, or the Sin Kong conflict, which um, messes up the entirety of American history, so, simply in order to preserve a few flashbacks. Oh, that that does remind me. Have you seen that one? Yeah. The one, speaking of that, uh, one thing we haven't mentioned so far is there seem to be a lot of teases in Hoxpox. Speaking of X Men continuity to Inferno. But yes. do you think that's do you think that's going to go anywhere? I think it's got to because he, it, it's been mentioned too often for it not to, to lead somewhere. And the other, I mean, there's not been much in the way of explicit magic in this so far. But I think that, first of all, I'm pretty sure that we're going to see more of Rasputin, um, the character who from the year 100 bit of uh, of Powers of Ten, because she um is she she's supposedly killed but what actually happens is she disappears into a black hole and then you get a whole load of data pages about but did you know black holes potentially connect to other things and so forth so she's obviously going to pop out from zorn at some point and and appear in the mainstream timeline and play a part there she's a version of magic in some sense she certainly appears to be cutting around her own version of the soul sword which is all part of inferno on top of that there's the magic an- angle that um Hickman seems quite keen to remind us that um, Magneto's Hidden Island has this uh, um, Lovecraft side to it, which was a subplot that Chris Claremont never got around to. But it's he, he's been very keen to remind us about that that, that uh, Lovecraft architecture, um, both for, for Magneto and for, uh, and for Namor. So there's something going on there in terms of setting up subplots about um, magic. Um, and also, if you're doing clones and Mr. Sinister, um, the uh, other element of Inferno was uh, Madeline Pryor, who was the Sinister's first clone of Jean Grey. So there's there's a lot of stuff um, all floating around in there, which you know, elements of Inferno are being quietly introduced. We've had a few mentions of Inferno. It seems to have nothing whatsoever to do with the actual plot so far, but it's... It's all one of these many things that's that's being set up for later. Um, there's an this is these these two arcs are on these two minis, um, House of X and Powers of Ten. They're not so much stories in their own right as they are um, introduction and setup arcs for years of stuff to come in multiple books, even if it's not always very clear how they're going to lead into all that. Um, but as long as you're you. Know, as long as you are interested in seeing where he's going with it, that that's fine. Um, I've I've always been hit and miss on Hickman in the past, so I'm not in the cat in the 
Camp, who is automatically interested in anything he does, I lasted about three issues on his Avengers. Um, on the other hand, I thought Manhattan Project was pretty great. So um, I was I, I went into this with sort of open mind, but bracing myself for the possibility that it was going to read like an extended spreadsheet. Um, and I, and I, so I, I can understand the reactions of people who do take that from it. But uh, I really liked it. I've, I've, I've really been uh, on board for the ride so far. Did you read Black Monday Murders? Oh, I think I read the first issue or so of that and then forgot to, to buy the rest. No, I was going to say, because that was his most recent creator. I mean, it's it's sort of been in limbo, I guess, probably while he's been doing all of this. And I think the artist may have had health issues, but I know there hasn't been an issue for a while. But I was really enjoying that just because it was it was doing a lot of things that Hickman seems to like, like weird history plus the occult plus conspiracy theories plus government stuff so that it was hitting a lot of yeah yeah it was hitting a lot of the things that he likes to do so i was really enjoying that so hopefully you know that's not a total casualty of him becoming the ex-architect but hopefully hopefully we'll get more of it and and certainly yeah hoxpox has been very big on the on the grand history and rarely descends to the level of individual characters, um, which tends to be the way Hickman likes to work anyway. Um, And I do wonder whether maybe it's going to be a strength that this is um, anchoring a line of books so that you'll get other titles which will fill in those gaps and will play um, to the bits that Hickman um, maybe doesn't emphasise so strongly. Maybe that will, uh, they'll they'll complement each other. Well, that was the thing. I mean, I know people complain about sort of the lack of of characterization in the in the series, but you know there, that you had one or two really. I guess maybe they're notable because there were so few of them. You had the the scene with Wolverine and Nightcrawler on the ship when they're about to die. That that seemed to be a scene that lots of people liked, and it seemed like there were there are a lot of good bits. That were uh, that were dialogueless, just that you saw in passing. Like, I really like that scene on the island where you have Gene and Scott and Logan all sort of like being friendly and sharing a beer, and then Gene takes a beer over to Emma, and they're kind of friendly, but they both have a weird look in their eye. Like, I thought that was like a nice little moment, and it's a lot of those things from that pages I thought were nice little character beats. I agree. I think there's the character beats are there, and I think for the most part they're good. Um, I think there are good thematic reasons why Hoxpox has not been paying much attention to the level of individual characters, because one of the themes of the series is individuals being subsumed into a greater whole and losing their individuality. Um, that's meant to be something that's already in progress with Krakoa by the time by the time we start. Uh, because it's 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 one of these as above so below structures where on the one hand you've got the um, uh, you know, in the far future you've got all of humanity being assembled assimilated into uh, vast godlike consciousnesses and here and now you've got the mutants becoming more and more of a sort of commune and um, their individuality being maybe less important uh, to them than it has been in the past. So I, I think it's a 
it's a deliberate choice, or at least it's a choice that works for the story. And again, he had so much to cram in, even with 12 issues, that, yeah, once we get all of these individual books, and again, he's writing, what, one or two, I think, so we'll see. He's writing X-Men and co-writing one of the others, isn't he? Well, I know he's, I thought with New Mutants, I thought he was, he's either co-writing or he's writing the first arc and then he's passing it off. Yeah. I think I think maybe to Rosenbaum, but I'm not 100% sure on that. But I know, because you know that Hickman is not going to come take over the X-Universe without getting his chance to write a New Mutants book. Well, he's going to use Cypher anyway. And uh, I mean, Cypher's not a character who's gone unused in recent years, but he's he's reset him somewhat to Cypher Classic. Yeah, and we've seen now he's used Cannibal and Sunspot in the Avengers, so we know he likes them. So I guess we'll see what he does with the rest of the sort of original New Mutant cast. Um, before we go, I figured, uh, and not just talking about the X-Books, but we'll talk about uh, what else uh, that you maybe have read or you guys have talked about on the podcast that you would like to point people to uh, that oh, you've gosh. read lately. What have we reviewed lately? I do not get as nearly enough to, as much time to read uh, other stuff as I would want, because um, it has been such a uh, a busy. Time. I was looking at some of the stuff we've reviewed lately. Strange Skies Over East Berlin. We reviewed that on the uh, on the House of House to Astonish uh, podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. That's a really fun book. I enjoyed that a lot. That's a sort of uh, that's from Boom Studios, I think, and that's uh, uh, sci-fi in Cold War Germany. I enjoyed that a lot. The one thing, uh, the one thing that I think, the sort of one thing that I want to read most every month right now, other than sort of the normal everyday books, is is Jimmy Olsen, which I think has just been a uh, tremendous fun. I, I I forgot to buy the last issue of that. That is, that's a, I mean, it, that book is mad, but it's uh, it, it's mad in a way that's really endearing. It's you, you could. A book like that can so easily not work. The that little structure of tiny little strips all going together into a hold, and uh, yeah, I liked that a lot. What else have I been bought recently? Steeple, uh, John Allison's new book. That's quite good. That's the uh, that's the guy who did Giant Days. Which and if you haven't read Giant Days, which is just about to wrap up, then that is absolutely worth reading from from square one. It's one of the best series of the last few years. You know, it's funny. Uh, I- it's like I've, tr- you know, knowing how often you guys have talked about it, I tried reading it, and it's one of those books where I admire the craft, but it did not do anything for me. Really? It's 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 funny that there are like certain things on the history of the pod where it's like, Giant Days did nothing for me, although I acknowledged how good it was, and I just care not one whit about the Transformers books, which I know, like you guys love. Oh, like especially the one series it's like you know you guys yeah, the james always, roberts one yeah the, the one that... yeah it's like you know every year when you guys do the awards everybody and all the listeners vote for it and i'm just like i just don't care and it's it's so, it's so funny because i know there's stuff that i read that i'm sure that like i know you you have a notorious uh i don't know if disdain is the right word for the fantastic four but you certainly do not have the love for the fantastic four that i do <laughs> I don't love them. No, <laughs> it's I, I, I can I've seen good Fantastic Four comics. I think it's a very hard um, format to pull off, and I think it's it's run into trouble a lot in recent years from leaning too heavily on the greatest hits, which I think 
undercuts what's strong about the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four, if you're going to do it at all, needs to be a book that keeps bombarding you with big, new, strange ideas. And the more you play the rely on the greatest hits, the more you um, make it familiar and and play away from what ought to be the strengths of the book. Which I think is one of the reasons I think that's why Hickman's run was so interesting, because Hickman, again, is somebody who loves doing stuff outside the boundary. And so he did a lot of weird stuff in that book that wasn't just, you know, them fighting Doom or them fighting the Red Ghost and his super apes. Yeah, and yeah, from what I've seen, the Covenant FF book, you know, they're, they're back to you know, Galactus and Doctor Doom again, um, which, yeah, classic characters, yes, but how many Galactus stories can you do in the Fantastic Four? I agree. I It's it's one of those books where I almost like either them doing, like we said, or them doing something really new, or you just do sort of like decidedly retro on purpose. Like, I don't know if that necessarily means setting stuff in the Silver Age-ish, but I like them doing small... I like them doing big stories, and I like them doing small stories. It's just sort of you know, when you get sort of the average in the middle, I think is when that book occasionally falls down. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the idea of doing a sort of retro sixties take on FF could work, but I mean, that's sort of, it's the sort of thing, thing you'd get Mike Orvid to do, isn't it? Well, I know that you guys reviewed it on the podcast and we had Carl talking about it, but you know, when they did section zero, that was sort of a, FF slash Challengers sort of throwback book that, you know, was said in the present, but had a very sort of, you know, retro sensibility to it, which I think is one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much. And it wasn't, it wasn't like set back then, but it had that old school kind of feel to it, which, which I liked. And now you guys were sort of fair to middling on. Yeah, but that was an unusual book, wasn't it? Because it had been, um, the first issue had come out years ago. And so they were effectively re- reprinting it with a view to then, then completing the series. Yeah, what and happened, certainly it, what, read, it reads that first issue like it's from a few years in the past, even, even allowing for the intentionally retro bits. Well, yeah, it's funny because the first three or four issues came out in 2000 when they were originally published. And then when they did the Kickstarter a couple of years ago, they finished it. So... The first three or four issues are set in quote-unquote 2000-ish. And then the other ones, I think, are set are more or less in the present. And the good thing is the book does jump forward to that to the present. So the stuff from the first couple issues is in their past. Because I know it's funny that one of the things you guys had mentioned in that book was the, the main character sort of uh, anti-hero guy has a very, very 90s haircut. Which is what you can tell when you read. But in the present... He has a sort of fair to middling normal haircut, and I think he even jokes at one point about what kind of haircut that I have back then, or something to that effect. So it was a nice wink to that that they knew about like the that time. You, I quite like that. If you're going to do to pick up a, a half completed series after that length of time, that you make that part of it because yeah, you're going to be able to feel the the, the um, feel the gap. You're going to be able to feel the change in the artist's style over that period. Uh, and if it's going to be there anyway, you may as well you know, make it a feature. 
Yeah, and there's going to be a second one that I think is actually now that we're talking about this retro kind of thing. I think the second one that's in progress or in production now is I think going to be set like in the '60s. So it's going to be that ver- the version of the team that was around in the '60s, which I think is like the the main character's father and the other team, and there's a a Russian that may or may not be a good guy, or, you know, it's sort of all the things you would expect in a book set during that time. So, yeah, so that's coming out. Like I said, I really would encourage people to check that out, too. There, it's the thing is, like, there's so much stuff on the market now that there's almost, you know, something for everyone, you know, and we've seen, you know, this big explosion in sort of non-traditional superheroes. Then you look at... Uh, you know, all the bookstore sales where it's like, you know, people I've always said, you know, people who only read superhero books are missing out on people who don't read super who read only not superhero books. Read out that, you know, there's good stuff all over the place. It's just finding what you like. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a, a vast range of material out there. I mean, even within Marvel and DC, you can't put out that many books a month without having some degree of range in them, but there's some amazing stuff coming out from the the smaller publishers. Um, there's definitely there's there's always good material out there. Yeah. Um, before we go, I figured uh, we had talked about this uh, before we started, but you said since you do not get to do it very often, that we would engage <laughs> in a few minutes of wrestling chat to, to feed your other niche. Uh, you said you've seen the first couple weeks of AEW. I have not. I oh right, okay. Have, yeah, how, I, how much of AEW have you seen? Uh, not much because I am not really. Uh, I'm not really a fan of many of the people involved. So I know what's going on. I re, you know I'm. God, it's frightening to say that I've been an observer subscriber for 30 years now almost. <laughs> so I certainly know the politics, but watching their brand. On the on the scale of things, I am closer to the the cornet end of what I want in my wrestling than the sort of uh, modern fan version of what they want in wrestling. So uh, I'm happy AEW exists, but I'm also happy not to watch it. Yeah, I mean, in some ways there are th- there are things about AEW that ought to be more appealing to the more traditional wrestling fan because. What's what's interesting? I mean, again, for those who may not be aware, AEW All Elite Wrestling is the um, rival promotion which has started running on on TNT, um, built around uh, a bunch of uh, guys who were star of um, North American guys who were stars in Japan, um, and a few guys who have uh, jumped from from WWE and and quite a lot of talented indie and international guys who they're um, using as well, it's a, it's a very talented roster. There's no no doubt about that. Um, it's you know, Raw and SmackDown um, over at WWE have felt very tired for a while now, very stylized and very much um, lacking in creative spark. So there's clearly a gap in the market for some sort of, of competition. And I, I, I was interested to see the demographics on this suggest that AEW has, is doing um, is attracting a much younger audience than WWE and probably a more advertiser attractive one. But uh, having seen their 
their pay-per-views and the uh, and the weekly show that the, the the similarities and differences from WWE are are, are quite interesting. I mean, it, they've they've certainly not made a show which is you know a radical break from the format of um, of Raw and SmackDown. You've still got um, you know it, it's still a two-hour live arena show. Um, you've still got people coming to the ring to to do promo segments and and, and things of that sort. Um, there's you know longer and probably better matches than on Raw and SmackDown, but you know it's the first couple of weeks and you've got to showcase some stuff in the in the shop window to to give people a reason to come back. I can't, I can't imagine you're uh, going to you know keep that up you know, week after week. You've got to you know, uh, pace yourself eventually. I think I think that's one of the problems that we're going to start seeing in a week or two, maybe with NXT, since it's the one that's running directly against AEW, is it seems like they've gone for a lot of quote unquote dream matches in NXT. They've take they're they're mixing in a lot of the top of the card guys against each other right away. And so it's the thing is you can only do that so many times before you then start repeating, because I think they've done a good job of keeping some of the people in NXT apart from each other. And th- so far they've resisted putting too many WWE quote-unquote cast-offs back to NXT. I think Finn, Finn Balor, Balor. Is, the, is the only one that they've done it with so far. But Brizango. And Brizango. It's funny that somebody mentioned on a podcast that it may have been Cornette who – was not familiar with Brizango and thought they were almost sort of there as sort of like a knockoff of the Bucks, which I thought would actually be a funny, would be a funny, it would be a funny use of them to use them as surrogates for the Bucks and then, you know, do the classic thing of sort of burying them in embarrassing ways as a sort of wink, wink, nod, nod to to the Bucks. Sort of, sort of like the I... stuff that Vince used to do regarding the NWA back in the day. It's, that's not really how they've been used on, on NXT. No, Instead, I'm saying they, I'm saying weird, they, yeah, they could. You've got this they, weird thing of, you're trying to, I mean, they put NXT, which is meant to be a trading show, although it's not really anymore. On the USA Network up against AEW, despite the fact it's a studio show filmed in front of 400 people. And you're doing things like for your for mystery guest partners in the main event. It's Breezango, guys who were, you know, jokes on the main roster. Um, very talented guys, totally underused. I'm delighted to see them getting the opportunity to have proper matches again. But, you know, if you're trying to get over NXT to a wider audience... I would not start by um, wheeling out two guys who have been treated as complete cannon fodder on Raw and SmackDown for years and going, hey, it's really impressive by NXT standards for these guys to show up in the main event. I mean, I'd put them on NXT and and rebuild them a bit by all all means, but to just bring them out as if they're automatically main event characters, even by NXT standards... I'm not sure that helps NXT. And you wonder, to the casual viewer, how many people even remember that Tyler Breeze was a fairly big deal in NXT however many years ago when he was there the first time. It's like, I'm sure your casual audience watching NXT is not going to remember that Tyler Breeze was the guy that got picked to have a match with Jushin Liger, of all people. 
was a good match as well. But you know, he was a talented guy, Tyler Breeze. They did, they really underused him on the main roster. He's one of these many people who came up from NXT to the main roster with a perfectly serviceable gimmick and was dead within a month. I do wonder. I said that they've only brought in Finn so far. I noticed. I don't. I don't remember reading everything from the draft version last night. But as far as I know, they're making a play that nobody has drafted Claudio yet, and I could easily see Claudio going back to NXT, where he was, you know, certainly a fairly big big name down there. And again, would the average people, would the average viewer see him as a cast-off, even though the educated fan knows how good he is? Cesaro. Yeah. Um, I mean, Cesaro, if you look at the way they've used him lately, um, he'd open challenge on an NXT UK takeover, and then they're sending him to Saudi Arabia to lose to Mansur. What's the guy's name? Mansur? Um so they've clearly got no real plans for the guy. I, I could well believe them sending him down to NXT to be a sort of player coach type guy. And, you know, it's the smart fans have certainly been angling for years for him to finally do something with, you know, since Hero, you know, has been down there and is probably never getting called up. And you talk about somebody being the player coach, which is pretty much what he is now, that, you know, people have wanted them to reform for the long time. So you wonder if that's... That could also be a nod to trying to get the smart fan who watches AEW to be is like, hey, you know, you guys have been clamoring for years to have this Kings of Wrestling reunion. Well, now you finally got it, so please watch our show over the other guys. That yeah. you wonder how if they're going to. I guess there's two ways they can go if they're wor- if they start losing noticeably in the ratings is to one. And Vince, they are losing noticeably right, in the ratings. But, but Vince. You know, whether Vince takes more of a hands-on approach, which will certainly not be good, or they go even farther to try and cater to the smart fan and just try and steal some of the AEW viewers, where you start booking more of the sort of indie... Do- well, because in a way, that's... I'm not sure that, you know, the, 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 the segment of the audience that, that remembers the Kings of Wrestling is large enough to... I mean, AEW is getting, getting a surprisingly decent... Audience figure was down significantly in week two, but that's to be expected. Week one was always going to be to be special. Um, I mean, what interests me about AEW is you've got, on the one hand, you've got some of these elements which, um, you know, the Jim Cornette types, uh, the looking for more traditional wrestling, would actually prefer about AEW compared to Raw. Um, it's much less. I mean, they'd make a big deal of it not be of not having not having writers be more accurate to say what they don't have is scripts. So when you're getting um, promos, people are talking much more naturally and off the cuff, and you don't have that awful stylized dialogue that has become the norm in uh, in WWE. You've got Jim Ross and uh, Tony Schiavone on and Excalibur, who's uh, not that different in in style. On commentary, in in those sort of uh, respects, you've got uh, something which is, probably is going to appeal to to that sort of uh, of audience looking for a more traditional um, presentation. They've even got uh, win loss graphics um, next to people's names when they come out with their with their win loss record, uh, which I haven't seen anyone do in in years because it's making a rod for your own back in attempting to to keep track of. Uh, of what their track, of what their record is, and heaven only knows what they're going to do in two years' time when people have got you know, enormous unwieldy records next to their name. 
Well, the problem, on the other hand, the problem when they try and do uh, things, the problem when they try and do things like that is people often cannot help themselves by using the work, using the shoot number. They have to make it a work because that was the thing with Goldberg, where the people actually coming to Nitro every week actually knew the correct number and were holding up signs, so they couldn't they couldn't fudge it. But then when they tried to do that with Sid a little later, they could. They almost couldn't help themselves, but by start padding the numbers, and everyone realized how silly it was when they saw how it worked the first time when they kept it real. I don't think they're going to they're going to make that mistake. I think they've. I mean, AEW doesn't even run house shows, so the scope to right. for pretending that um, that people have had a, a mystery win at a, at a show you didn't see uh, is 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 very limited. They're they're taping dark matches at all of the uh, dynamite tapings but those are all going on youtube so at the moment every every AEW match even the the dark matches are, are available to watch and you know what what on earth the thinking is of saying we're going to, have to do a two-hour show and then for the dark match to go on youtube we'll do a half hour kenny omega match um it'll get people watching the youtube channel but um but yeah you've you've got I mean, it's interesting. You've got this on the one hand, this quite traditional aspect of AEW. On the other hand, you've got the more you know choreographed um, um, aspects of the, that you you get in, in young bucks matches. You've got I mean, you've got Orange Cassidy there, which would uh, drive the traditionalists mad. Although at the moment, all he all he's actually done so far is is stand around um, um, next to um, Chuck Taylor and and uh, Trent Beretta and occasionally he, he occasionally um like he's intervened once to prevent them to, to, to help them not get beaten down by someone so you know um orange cassidy is uh as a guy who you have sitting around in the background for, for months and then eventually you have him actually do something that 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 can work because he's actually great if you've ever seen him do an actual competitive match i think as I, orange cassidy i was gonna say i think i saw him as orange cassidy a couple years ago when the first powerbomb tv show i think that our mutual friend joe did the commentary for because the show that had uh puma and felino versus oh i've not uh guerrero maya and someone who else whose name escapes me but that was up in uh up in pennsylvania a couple years ago i want to say that he that orange cassidy as orange cassidy was on that show. I certainly was a fan of Orange Cassidy uh, before he was Orange Cassidy. We won't say who that was, but uh, but yeah, I I was a fan of his back then. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a very very good wrestler, and if you see him, I mean, he, he in his run as the IWTV champion, I mean, he does do. It's not just a comedy shtick he does do actual matches as orange cassidy these days and it's uh um i mean that will pay off really well when they do it so there's a lot of stuff about AEW that 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 i like there's what worries me still is weird booking decisions that you know nothing quite of the order that you've of uh, insanity that you get on on wwe at its worst but i still I don't quite follow the. Um, they have a worrying um, show, worrying signs of thinking that everything should be shades of grey, no clear cut faces and heels. You think, well, so who am I meant to be cheering for here? 
Um, I noticed and, yeah, that when they when they uh, when Jericho formed his first uh, stable, I was like, okay. So I think this means all these Jericho's guys are... clearly a heel. But I, so I'm like, okay, so this stable, okay, so now I know these guys are meant to be heels. But I'm like, then I was like, well, are the Bucks? I think the Bucks are heels. I think, and I. Well, Cody... The Bucks are baby faces. See, I thought they were heels. Cody's the confusing one. Um, the Bucks and Kenny Omega seem to be basically baby faces. Certainly, they've never done anything heelish. Um, Kenny Omega, um, Cody is just weird because he's kind of heelish, but he's kind of a baby face as well. And then you've got Brandy Rhodes next to him, who is just all over the place in terms of character. So does this, uh, um, they do this video package about, um, which makes her look like a total baby face about how she's, uh, um, you know, o- um, overcoming criticism and, and fighting to have the best you know, match she can have, and so forth, and, and then comes out and wrestles as a total heel, and and she's booked in a as they've they looked alarmingly for a while as though they were going to book her as the uh, person in charge of the women's division, basically Stephanie McMahon, which is an awful idea. But aside from the fact it's been done before with uh, Stephanie McMahon, it was a bad idea when it was done with Stephanie McMahon. Um, and they seem the, to have dulled back on that on the on the weekly show, so I'm hopeful that they are learning from and that. Yet, because... And yet, the thing is that Brandy, I think, is technically really is the person in charge of the women's division. So then, then you get into that, which is weird... fine as long as you don't make it a heel character. Well, but I was going to say, then there's the thing of: Are you supposed to, as a viewer, are you supposed to know that Cody and Kenny and the Bucks are like? the actual guys in charge of the promotion or is that, is that separate? But they, but you know, they, they are now doing this sort of sports thing where they have post show press conferences where they discuss things that happen as, re- you know, so the post show. Yeah. So the post show press conferences, they, they seem to be doing out of character, but, but um, the, within the universe of AEW, um, no, the Young Bucks and the Elite do not appear to be uh, in story running the show. There is, um, they, they, they don't, they've tried to avoid having an on-screen authority figure. So what you get is vague um, statements about um, the AEW committee um, deciding on, uh, on on matches. Um, so they're they're trying to they've they're trying to do the bare minimum of identifying who's actually running AEW while making clear that it's not any specific individual, and it's certainly not the elite as a group. Which makes you wonder how long until Tony Khan becomes an on-stream character. Hopefully he resists the temptation. I, I certainly hope so. Um, I think there's there's some odd gimmick choices that are in there as well. I, But the best one in the world, I don't understand what the point is of going overboard on Britt Baker being a dentist. Um, apparently she is a real dentist uh, whether you really want to advertise that people on your national TV show each week have a day job I'm not sure I would be pushing that it's funny it's one and of those also, things it's a dentist gimmick I mean, it makes you wonder if it's one of those things where it's like we want to show how three dimensional our, our, our characters are it's sort of like how 
But it's not three-dimensional. It's a dentist. Gimmick. But I'm, I'm saying it's sort of like how for the longest time they always had to point out that Xavier Woods has a PhD. You know, like that was his thing. And, you know, they it's like it's almost the kind of thing where, look, not all of our wrestlers are dumb meatheads. One of our wrestlers yeah. has a PhD. It's not just to announce that to, to keep reminding us that that Baker happens to be a qualified dentist. It's giving her entrance music that opens with "The Doctor Will See You Now," um, and and uh, and ring gear with pictures of teeth on it, and the, and the mandible claw as a finishing move. I mean, it's just weirdly out of kilter with the tone of the rest of the show. It seems to me. I, I don't get that. I and don't I'm, get that as a choice. And am I correct so far in the first couple of weeks we have not seen the Dark Order at, on regular TV yet? Ooh, I think you're right. They are in the um they're in the tag team tournament though, so they will be they will be coming up. But they have a bye to the second round because they uh won that on one of the pay per views earlier in the year. So yeah, the, the Dark Order will show up at some point, but um because I know that we haven't reached their match in the they're doing one tournament match a week, so it's going to take a while to reach them. Because it seems to me that that has been the gimmick that has garnered the most negative feedback. So for, that and the librarian. I think the librarians have garnered actual negative feedback. The Dark Order is. I mean, the librarians are just what? What on earth? Do you want um, two feud, two feuding librarians with potential romantic tension uh, who come out to whose entrance music is silence because they're librarians? Um, that's just weird, uh, and that's really yeah. That's that's the thing that people really don't like about the uh, um, um, about um, yeah, that's a gimmick that people really don't like. The Dark Order's problem is more that they're, it's not getting a reaction. Um, if people actively didn't like it, um, that would probably be a bigger deal because at least you know, they'd get some heel heat and they are meant to be heels. But um, there's nothing obviously wrong with the Dark Order gimmick. It's just not getting a reaction for some reason. Um, you know that they're one of your fairly standard um, cult groups where they you've got these two guys surrounded by um, masked henchmen. Um, fine, seen it done before, but it's not a fundamentally bad idea. Um, but it's not connecting, and I'm not quite sure why. Because you know it's it's not like they're bad wrestlers. I say for people who people with long memories may remember them as the Super Smash Brothers years ago. But that's – it's funny how many years ago that's now been. If you, when I stop and think about, like, how long it's been since I used to go to Chikara shows, and these guys have been around for that long, which is true for a number of people on the AE – there are a few a few Chikara alum on the AEW roster in various names and forms. Bryce Rensburg. Yeah, Bryce and Chuck Taylor and uh, other people who we won't yes. necessarily name. So, but but speaking of that, I will say we we talked about this before we started that you have not seen, as we've talked about how different the AEW show is. You have not seen the the retro NWA show yet. 
Which... I have seen a little bit of it because I was I was intrigued by um, the way it was described, and I, so I I know what it looks like. I've not actually sat down and watched an episode. That is a weird thing. That is Billy Corgan spending, you know, throwing money away <laughs> on making a, a fairly high budget YouTube show of studio wrestling of the sort he remembers from the from growing up in the eighties, I guess. Um, and it does it looks eighties to me. Um, not comedy 80s, but it looks 80s. No, and I mean, I have to say that I am inclined, as we've said, that is more of what I would prefer to watch. And again, I watch more old stuff now than new stuff. The only new stuff that I watch now is is CMLL, which is a chore in and of itself these days. But it's, it's yeah, it's decidedly re- it's retro without being camp so far. As, as I said... You know, you've got guys having, you know, the first episode had a fairly couple of short squash matches, some yelling back and forth between guys, and then a fairly good, pretty good, but not great title match between Nick Aldis and Tim Storm, which is a very... It's, to be, it's, was, it's similar quality to what you get on a typical episode of NXT from the sound of it, um, right. until it went on the network. A couple of squash matches and a reasonably competitive main event which is probably decent but i would say the one thing that you may want to watch from week one and uh episode two has gone up live as we've been doing the podcast so we haven't seen it yet um is the is the injection into this sort of retro stayed 80s thing of of all people eddie kingston being classic eddie kingston and so, yeah, that seems like such a weird um, style clash, which, and, and, and maybe it works. Maybe that's that's something that can help um, um, change, yeah, make it more than a retro thing. Because I mean, one of the things that felt odd to me was the idea that you're going to have um, this very retro uh, show and wrestlers not acknowledge the, the not acknowledge what it is. I think it's, I mean, it's, from what we've heard about the first show, it's like they're just trying to, I mean, it's definitely played straight. It's not like. Oh, it is. As, it's, as, it's, I, as I saw I said, enough of it to know it's clearly not being played for, uh, as, a, as a parody. As I said, the thing that would ruin this this setting would be suddenly if you had, for example, if you had Colt Cabana as Matt Classic. If for people that remember mm. the Matt Classic game, like if you're purposefully wrestling like it's 1984, then that's a bad idea. But if you've got relatively toned down modern wrestling, but in a retro set, I think I think that can work for its niche. I mean, I think they probably do would like to get on TV somewhere. But that's the question, though. Where on earth is going to take this show? Because you know, there's a lot of wrestling on TV at the moment, and where's there, there'll be an audience? There's an audience for this, but whether it's an audience that's large enough to attract a uh, to attract a TV uh, um, TV money, I have my doubts. And well, I mean, because we've seen, you know, that Impact barely exists. I mean, if it weren't for Anthem owning Impact and now buying Access TV, that they're now going to have a home, whereas you know, Impact went through, when it was still TNA, went through a series of 
progressively more obscure television channels that was, that <laughs> it was, was hilarious that was i mean they um, were on they were on the tv guide channel or what what evolved from the tv tv was that what yeah it was there, called? Was, there it was on pop pursuit TV. yeah which pop, is yeah. meant to be a hunting and fishing channel <laughs> Which which um, which is fine because I mean wrestling used to be on TNN and TNN was largely when well when when well, it, was it was originally part of what led to TNN rebranding though we had the Nashville network yeah it was and then the it became national, TNN right yeah it was the Nashville network and then it became the national network and that's when WWF went there twenty years ago when they when they when they weren't on USA that's where they were and although it seems like such a long 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 time ago now. But in, in British terms, it sounds like the equivalent of being on, I mean, not even on Discovery, on Discovery Shed. Um, one of these weird satellite, you know, minor spin-off channels of a channel that's fairly high up the program guide to start with. And and how Impact has, has clung in there for, the, for, for, that, for that long, I've, I've, I've no idea. Ring of Honor, but how many people, I mean, Ring of Honor from the sound of it is getting almost nobody at its shows these days. They're, you're getting more and more reports of, really poor turnout for those for, for, for those shows but again we've, we're now seeing the common theme of wrestling wrestling promotions being owned by television companies so you have you know you don't have to that's at least one thing you don't have to worry about is distribution when you're owned by the television company that you know it at the very least say you know as bad as it gets for ring of honor until they sell sinclair is going to put ring of honor on their television channels so, yeah. you know, it may be on at, you know, one o'clock in the morning on your local Sinclair affiliate in whatever city you live in, but at least it's on. You know, Impact is going to be on Access, whether they get a good time slot or not, they're at least going to be on Impact. Is it on streaming services in, in the U.S.? I'm, I'm never very clear about how streaming services work for most of the uh, American networks. In, I, in Britain, you know, most you know, first, second, third tier channels just have a free streaming service now which might show you a few adverts but if it's on tv it's on demand i think i know impact had streaming or at least had vod because they for a while had some sort of platform where you could watch classic tna which sounds funny but you know when you have yeah but that's that's yeah. their own proprietary one. I mean, in, right. in Britain, AEW, if you want to watch AEW, it's on ITV Hub. So, which you know, any any modern um, smart TV will have. Um, so, or, or if you want, if you've got satellite or cable, you'll 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 have access to. So, it's it's available as an on-demand show for a month. So, the fact that it happens to have this dodgy time slot of eleven forty-five on a Friday night is not such a big deal. Um, whereas in America, from the sound of it, if it's on at one o'clock in the morning, you've actually got to go to the trouble of taping it. Yeah, but I mean, I think if most people have DVRs, I think that's not necessarily that much. I think it's, I think, I think so much modern television is all about time shifting. I think that's why the AEW versus NXT thing is interesting because it's not like the Monday Night Wars where, you know you had VCRs and that was it where it's like, I don't know how many, how many wrestling fans are actually flipping back and forth between the two or they're just saying, I'll watch one and DVR the other and I'll get around to it because it's not like, you know, the classic days in the nineties where, you know, you, 
it was important to be watching one or the other because you didn't know what was going to happen. I think now yeah. it's just like I'll watch, I'll watch one and then watch the other. I don't think it's that much of a big deal anymore. Yeah, exactly. And if, if you're not watching it live, and listen, we're not watching it live. Frankly, most of these shows are better if you're watching the if you if you recorded because you can wind past the dull bits. They're two hours long, for heaven's sake. How much of this? Yeah, you know, who's got time? to watch two, both shows in, in their entirety at two hours. Yeah, I, I don't know. How, I, I'm, I'm amazed by the people who watch as much as they do. I certainly do not have the inclination, and if I had the inclination, I do not know if I would have the motivation to watch all that there is. Because it's, yeah, it's, it's much, just, much easier just to speed through everything if you have to. And there's so much, there's so much filler, even when they're trying to now do the thing where they run matches through commercial breaks with picture in picture. It's like, <sighs> no, thank you. Yeah, what you get on, on ITV Hub for AEW is you get the commentators saying that that's going to happen, and then it just carries on in the main picture. It's, it's weird. They haven't bothered changing the uh, – they've they've changed bits of the um, commentary for, for the UK, but they haven't changed those bits. At least they, they did, didn't read one. Um, so yeah, I, I think they, they, one of the issues they've had with, 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 with the AEW is that of course in Britain, we have stricter rules about how many uh, ad breaks you can have per hour. So that's one of the reasons why they can't just, uh, well, it's not as straightforward as simply taking the live feed from America. And I know you had mentioned that there was, was it week one? There was some judicious week, editing. Uh, week, no, in week one, there was some unjudicious editing. There was about half an hour. You know, there was an entire segment in the opening section missing. And I think, they said they made vague mutterings about technical problems, um, and given it went up several hours late, I'm guessing that might actually have been true because certainly week two's episode seems to be there in its entirety. So I'm thinking something probably just went wrong um, with putting up the first episode. I don't know why. No, because I know we had talked about whether wondering if it was content related because I know you had Tony Schiavone calling somebody a prick. And a bastard. And That's weather. not going to be a problem on street on a, on uh, on streaming or on the late night showings. Um, I know that the that they they it gave them more problems with the eight twenty a.m. on a Sunday morning showing, and I don't I don't know what the point is of getting somebody to edit down the show for for daytime broadcast at eight twenty on ITV four when you know at a push you got what seventy thousand people watching. Um, apparently they they heavily edited the that that for language and then left in Kenny Omega going through a glass table. So <laughs> I'm not sure they've really thought through what their what their sta what their um, standards are for that. Paul, I want to thank you very much for staying up late as we do this cross this transatlantic pod uh, for doing the things. Uh, people can catch uh, you and Al on the House to Astonish pod and the house to astonish .com. Um, anything else uh, you want to you want to mention while you're here yeah you can find me on twitter at if destroyed and uh, as you say the reviews are all at uh, house to astonish .com. thanks and you guys had an episode i think what last week so you should be coming out with a new one in a few weeks time probably hopefully a week or two yeah we're not as regular as we used to be but we're we're aiming for every two to three weeks as as Not aiming very successfully, but we are aiming for it. Well, those of us who remember the six to eight month hiatus that you had the one time, so I, th I think I think most of uh, the fans of your show can live with uh, every two or three weeks. 
Well, we're, we're, that's what we're gunning for. We'll, we'll see how uh, whether we ever manage to get quite back into that rhythm, but we'll do our best. Thanks again, Paul, for your time, and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, and thanks for everyone for listening, and we'll be back next time. I don't like the Joker, and that penguin I would chase. And as for that naughty Riddler, ooh, I'd smack him in the 